Today I want to talk about letters from the head to the church. I didn't intend to, and I, this is not really a series on uh, church, or, but uh, this is sort of a thematic uh, avenue that God, last Sunday, the Lord led me uh, to speak on, have we misplaced the Word of God? Um, and uh, that was uh, mainly aimed at the American church. Uh, and I, I said at that time that my greatest burden is not for who wins the election, and my greatest burden is not even the, the future of the United States of America. My greatest burden is for the American church because the Scripture says it's, it is time for judgment to begin at the house of God. Now, if a nation repents and a nation uh, returns to God, he's got promises about what he will do, heal the land and so forth. Uh, and the Bible says righteousness exalts a nation. Let's say that together. Righteousness exalts a nation. So if we're really concerned about our country, and we should be, then we need to give attention to how righteousness can be a part of our life, not just our individual life, but the church life. And uh, and so that, by the way, and I felt like the Lord wanted me to say this during worship some of you are, when Leah was talking about rest, some of you can't rest because you feel like you're losing. You feel like we're losing. You're watching the news and you're watching the reports. And, uh, and by the way, some people have, uh, some people have a, or a, approached these situations like a football team. My team's got to win. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get all bent out of shape, throw temper tantrums if my team doesn't win. And it's far more serious than that. And I just want to tell you that as long as God is on the throne, there is no losing. You cannot lose. The person that you want to win an election may lose an election, but God still wins. We got to keep that in mind. Letters from the head. What would happen? What happens? When a communique comes from the founder and head of the church, what happens when you get a letter from the chairman of the board? What happens when you get something from the person who runs the company or even owns the company? I remember years ago, when I say years ago, I'm talking 40 years ago, when I was pastoring in South Louisiana and I bought me a little MGB. Somebody said, how in the world did you get into that? Same way I got out of it. But anyway, and I needed a little more money to pay for that thing. I paid a whole $1,700 for it, if you, you know, 18, actually $1,800. And uh, so I went down to a local lumber yard. I loved, I always loved building materials. And I got me a, a job working a couple of days a week at this lumber yard just so I could, uh, I could uh, help pay for that MGB. By the way, I wound up selling it two years later back to the guy I bought it from for $1,500. I did pretty good. <laughs> But the name of the store that I worked at was called Lundy's, L-U-N-D-Y-S, and the guy who owned it was Dave Lundy. And, we, and he didn't live in our town. And we were in, quote, gray Louisiana. He said, where is gray Louisiana? It's right next to white and black. You put them together, you know, and you get gray. But anyway, uh, near Thibodeau, Louisiana, that Jerry Reed sang about. Uh, but this guy lived in Lake Charles, Louisiana. And so 
So every now and then we'd be mulling around the store and I'd be there and Dave Lundy would walk in. All of a sudden everything, man, everybody got tight and everything because, you know, he'd just tell you like it was and he'd straighten you out if you need to be straightened out. That's kind of like what the happens here. What happens if you get the, some communication from the head of the church? Well, uh, we're going to uh, we're going to refer to these seven letters that are given to us to allow us to understand what the head's looking for in his church or in his churches. You know, if if you want to know what the church is supposed to look like and how it's supposed to function, then then you go to the head of that church, the founder of that church, and say, what does he want? And what doesn't he want? It's pretty simple. And when we do that, we should watch for what Jesus wants and what he dislikes in his church and then examine our own hearts accordingly. Because remember we said last week, the church is made up of people, not bricks, brick and mortar. People, people's hearts. And so we should examine what is it that Jesus says to these seven churches and that he likes and what does he dislike. And by the way, uh, for those of you who have volume four of the Kernels of Truth book that I published, I have two chapters in that book on the, on this topic, maybe a little more detail than I can go into today. But we're going to read in a moment, if you want to turn to Revelation one, and we're going to read one through twenty. Uh, and uh, ironically enough, we're not going to read, uh, at least together, the passages about the letters, but I just want you to read the precursor or the prologue to this, uh, to these letters. And, and I also want to say something. When you read the Revelation of St. John, when you read the Revelation, I know people call it Revelations, just, you know, I'm, I'm persnickety. It's not Revelations, it's just the Revelation. Um, it's not incorrect to look for future happenings in the revelation. But if that's all you look for, you're going to miss a whole lot of really good stuff. If you're just looking, reading revelation to try to predict the future or find out what the future looks like, you're going to miss a whole lot. Like the first verse, Don and I had a conversation about the first verse just a few weeks ago. Let's stand and I'll begin to read from the English Standard Version, but the very first verse says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God, who's the Father, gave him to show to his servants the things that must take soon take place. Don't, don't miss the distinction there. The revelation of Jesus Christ, the Son, which God the Father gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. Now, John is writing this, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. We sang about the Asian believers today. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and father. 
To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We just sang about how we are a kingdom and we're a bunch of priests. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus Christ, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, don't miss that he's on the island of Patmos because he is incarcerated. Or as Barney Fife said, inoculated. He's in jail. He's in prison. Put yourself in prison and then read the next line. The next line, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. How in the world do you get in the spirit in prison? Amazing to me. And he said, I heard from behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, right. Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white. I'm more like Jesus every day, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, leaves no question as who that was. That wasn't in there. I just said that. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Right. Therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, are, and those that are to take place after this. And as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of those seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. You can be seated. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would add to the reading of your word, your anointing, your revelation, and that each one of us would hear the voice of your Holy Spirit speak to us and that you would open our eyes that we might see. And I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. This is a, it's a phenomenal passage here that he's dealing with. Now, you know, he says, I am the one that out of his mouth, it says a two-edged sword, and now he's addressing the churches. First of all, let's just go through this real briefly. This is not, I just want to set this up. What is the church? Now you say, well, I know what the church is. What is the church? Well, I'm going to give you a definition, and there, it's not the be-all, end-all. But here's the definition that I'm going to offer you, and it's a collective of saints called out to be a unique and peculiar people having the name of Jesus, our Lord, as a common bond. That's worldwide. That goes across lines of doctrine in many cases and emphasis. But it's it, we're a collective of people that have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light, and he's put us together. The local church is simply a localized, tangible, and accessible expression 
of the whole church of the living God. We, we are as a local church, we are expressing in a local uh, place, in a locale, we're expressing through our lives a tangible expression of what God's church worldwide really is. Uh, the worldwide church cannot in and of itself do anything really. It has to be done through the local church. I mean, that just makes sense. And Jesus said, he said to, to Matthew, in Matthew 16, we just studied this Wednesday night in our home group. He said, I will build my church, emphasis on my. We have to remember that it's his church. And we, his people, through our obedience to Christ as our king, we participate in the process of that building. We are obedient to him. Now, I'm not going to turn to these passages, but uh, if you want to take notes, I want to just remind us that the church is organic. And uh, you can you can go to 1 Peter 2. Go ahead and put those up, William. There you go. You can go to 1 Peter 2, Ephesians 2, Ephesians 4. And by the way, if you can't write fast enough, just take a picture. Click, and you got it. Uh, but anyway, those are passages that will teach us or remind us that the church is more than an organization. It's more than an institution. It's more than a 501c3 nonprofit. It's all of that, but it's more than that. The church, and you'll learn in those passages, is that God, the church is God's purchased possession. He paid for the church with his own life and with his own blood, and that the church is a living, organic entity, and it naturally grows. We said this already, but we asked the question, whose church is it? Who does the church belong to? The church is the body of, everybody, Christ. Church is the body of Christ, called to fulfill the mission of Christ on the earth in his physical absence. We are called to extend and continue what Jesus began while he was on the earth. He he goes to heaven, assumes his place at the right hand of the Father, and we, his body, Function, his church function as his body in the earth, fulfilling what he started in his physical absence. And you'll see repeatedly in this passage, as we're not going to read every verse, you'll see this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's important that we hear in 2020, as we, we've got our We're hanged 10 on 2021, so those of you who know about surfing. We're almost there. It's important that we hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Because I believe in the next days that the church of Jesus Christ, and especially the church of Jesus Christ in in our country, is going to play a major role in what happens next in our world. So uh, in... Chapters 2 and 3, again, you just go back and read all that later. I may reference some verses. Uh, we want to look at two things. And the first thing we want to look at is what does Jesus identify as the dis- displeasing characteristics? What are the displeasing characteristics to the head of the church? What is it that he identifies in these seven? By the way, these are real churches. This is not, and, and, and they are New Testament churches. This is not, this is, this is where we live. And he identifies these seven churches and I'm not going to try to turn to all the verses. I'll let you look them up later, 
but I'll try to, I'll try to reference the churches. So he, he, one of the first things he says to the church of Ephesus is that I, the one thing, one problem I got with you is you have forsaken your first love. Remembering that love is not an emotion, but it's a, it's a choice. It's a decision we make. He says you have forsaken what is primary. And when he says you've forsaken your first love, he's not talking about in order of appearance. He's talking about what is primary. You have forsaken what is foremost in your life. You have went to the side. You have ceased doing the things that you did at the first. You've, you've ceased. You've, you've walked away. Now, some people, you know, when you walk with God a long time, you find yourself one day that you've kind of just got into a state of idle. I don't mean I-D-O-L, but I-D-L-E. You just get into a place of idling along, and you have you have forgotten what where you got started. Now, again, I'm going to give you some lengthy quotes. Most of them are from the, the, my book, The Kernels of Truth, Volume 4. And it said, this one says, sometimes we as believers get mature and we move on from what was at one time the most foremost thing in our lives, a pursuit of relationship with our God. Let me stop right there. How many of you can remember, don't raise your hand, when you first came to Christ, especially if you came to Christ as an adult or later on, especially if you had a, uh, well, an ambiguous background, a dubious background, and God saved you out of a mess. Remember what you felt, how you felt that day, that moment, that week, as you, as you pursued Jesus Christ as your Lord. He said, or I said, we can become so occupied with the things of God or the people of God or maybe even the mission of God that we lose sight of where this thing began. It began with him. Uh, there's nothing wrong with the things of God. There's nothing wrong with the people of God. And there's certainly nothing wrong with the mission of God. But preceding that must be a pursuit of our relationship with Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. None of that works if that's not. That's the top button in the top hole. Sometimes we are too active when we are drawn away from quiet times with the Lord. We're too active when we have replaced fellowship with the Father with doing things for God. You you say, that doesn't make any sense. Yes, it does. And a lot of you can testify that you can get so occupied and so busy doing things for God that you lose sight of your relationship with Jesus Christ. And without that relationship, then all you're doing is religious activities. He said to the church of Pergamum, he said, the problem I've got with you is you hold to the teachings or the sin of Balaam. And you remember the story of Balaam where the donkey had to start talking to him. That's, and that, uh, that's found in Numbers 22. But he said the sin of Balaam is that he was self-willed. He was, he was doing what he wanted to do. Balaam was presumptuous because he, he was seeking to alter the divine plan. He was trying to change God's mind. He was trying to change God's plan because it was financially beneficial to Balaam. Balaam had impure motives. He was attached to the wages of unrighteousness. We can't allow material gain to compromise our integrity. That's so easy to do. 
the, the expectation, expectation or hope of receiving some financial or material blessing may sometimes dilute our convictions and cause us to justify or rationalize ourselves into doing something or going somewhere we shouldn't or maybe worse, not doing something or saying th- something we should. I was, uh, in 1977, is when I began, some of us began to make sort of a move towards uh, Brother Charles Simpson and some of the folks that were affiliated with him, Bob Mumford, Derek Prince, and the others, um, Don Basham. And the church that I was serving as assistant pastor at the time, we, we were, we were going to go together to fly down to central Florida and meet with a pastor in Leesburg, Florida. And, uh, at some point, the pastor of the church, uh, just said, hey, we're not going to do that. We're not going down there. I said, we're not. He said, no, we, we, we don't. Well, anyway, I'm not going to get into why, but he just said, we're not going to go down there. We were in a local bookstore one day, he, the two of us together, and we ran across this really good friend of ours, and uh, he was a pediatric dentist. He was Adam and Jason's dentist when they were little bitty fellows. And... uh and his name was Dr. Charles Bush. He's in heaven now. As a matter of fact, everybody I'm talking about, I think just about, is in heaven now. I'll start thinking about that, huh? <laughs> uh, so we were in this bookstore and milling around. There was Dr. Bush. And like I said, we were really good friends with Dr. Bush. And he was a great guy. And, uh, and, he, and he said, I heard that y'all might be going down to Central Florida to meet with those folks. And, and the pastor, who again, he's in heaven pastor said, you want to go? And I looked at him, and, he, and, and, and of course, Dr. Bush said, I might want to. He said, well, yeah, then we're going then. Why do you think he changed his mind? Did I tell you that he was a dentist? Money talks. Yeah, I can't talk about that. Another thing that Balaam did was manipulated the Israelites to succumb to physical indulgence. You just have to go back and read all this. He he manipulated them into into imbibing themselves into things they shouldn't. A similar sin was the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And again, you have to just do your research. They represented and taught and they justified unbridled lust and excess. Unbridled, just go for it. Go for the gusto, man. You only live once. Uh, just do anything. And, and you know, there's a, there's in the church today, there's a stream of Nicolaitanism. That's not a word. I just made it up flowing that says grace allows us to behave any way we choose immorally or compromisingly because God's grace will take care of it. You can do anything you want to do. It doesn't matter. Just live, live like the devil. It doesn't matter. Paul had an, Paul had an answer to that. He writes in Romans 6, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin live in it? Still live in it. And there's, there's a teaching in the world today, and it's been there a while. And there's still people, I hear people every now and then, oh, it don't matter how you live. It does matter how you live. It doesn't matter what you do. It does, it does matter what choices you make. It does matter who you hang out with. It does matter how you think. It does matter what lifestyle you adopt. It does matter. And then the church of Thyatira, he tells them that you tolerate the spirit of Jezebel. I mean, you 
1 Kings 17. And we don't really know if this was an actual, I think it's an actual person, but not by the name of Jezebel. Some people think it's just addressing the spirit of Jezebel. And by the way, you've heard me say this recently, maybe, maybe not, but you cannot, you can never have a Jezebel unless you first have an Ahab. Did you hear that? Come on, men. You can't have a Jezebel unless you first have an Ahab. What is an Ahab? An Ahab is a weak, sniveling, abdicating, person, man, who who reneges on his responsibilities and, and steps aside. In the moment, in the moment that Adam and Eve sinned, Adam was one of those. Because we know for a fact that he was standing there when she partook of that fruit. We know he was standing there. And we know God told him and not her to don't, t- don't eat that fruit. We know that. So why didn't he step in and say, Eve, we're not supposed to eat that? Because he was a weak, sniveling, abdicating man in that moment. And thus sin occurred. Jezebel. Truth is, Jezebel's influence on Israel was the result of an intermarriage that was forbidden by God. Her marriage to Ahab was forbidden by God. It was an intermarriage. That was not approved. Uh, she was a self-declared mouthpiece of God. Uh, she called herself a prophetess, but the Lord did not call her a prophetess. The spirit of Jezebel is controlling and manipulative. It's agenda-driven. And it always has an inability to submit to authority. You have to... You have to be careful in any church situation that you don't have people. We've had people come in this place since I've been here and try, have an agenda, had, had, uh, want to manipulate things and want to have their own way. And they certainly were, were unable to submit to authority. And so consequently, they aren't here anymore. I'll start looking around the room. And most of you have no idea who I'm talking about. Beware of those who proclaim to have the word of God, but are riding a horse called silver. These are lone rangers. (laughs) There is, let me say it another way, for those of you who want to be grammatically correct, there are no lone rangers in the church. We're all connected We're all submitted to authority. We all have God's agenda. And if we can't submit to God's agenda, then we have a problem. And he says to this church, you let this go on. You've allowed this to go on in your church. Then he talks to Sardis and said, you you have a state of slumber. That's what I have against you. you got a problem with slumber and laziness. He even says that they're dead. Well, we know they're not dead physically, but they're dead because they've slumbered. They are lazy. And this results in their work being unfinished. Their work being, how many in the church today? How many in this church today? I don't know. I really don't know the answer to this. But how many are in a state of laziness and slumber to the degree that what God has called and gifted you to do is not getting done? The last thing you want to hear is God say, I found somebody else. Now, he's going to get his work done. Wouldn't you rather use you than have to go find somebody? 
Jesus told his church, I have not found your deeds completed. And then Laodicea, he tells them, what I got against you is you're lukewarm. Talked about this last week, not going to spend a lot of time. But they, lukewarm means there's, you falsely believe there's no need. You believe that you got everything you need and you're not hot. Jesus said you're not hot and you're not cold. I'd rather you be one or the other. But when you're lukewarm, you're sickening to me. Another word for lukewarm here is the word indifference. Um, I, I don't know. I, I've seen Christians over the years. I've seen Christians in this church walk in here and they're so indifferent and have such a spirit of melancholy on them. Like it, nothing really matters. You know, I'm just here because I have anything better to do. And uh, I've seen that on people. And Jesus said, I'd rather you just go ahead and get all the way cold than to be lukewarm. And we learned last week that on that kind of a church, Jesus is on the outside knocking to get in. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. God let it never be that Jesus has to stand on the outside of Abundant Life Church knocking to get in. Never. We're in control of that. Well, that's enough of the negatives. What is Jesus looking for in his church? And we find all of these in these seven, in the letters to these seven churches. Going back to the church of Ephesus, he said, I like your diligence. I like that you're diligent. He said, I know your deeds and your diligent labor. Diligence is just hanging on and doing what we we need to do. We find in this word in the scripture, distress and a strength-reducing effort. In other words, you're doing something. You're applying yourself. You're, You're endeavoring to apply what God has given you and taught you to what he has before you. Come on, people. Even if it's wrong, do something. Don't cower in a corner saying, oh, I'll wait till God tells me. I'll wait till God. Do it. If you see someone on the street, you see a need, we go back to Bill Wilson. We talked about it Wednesday night at our home group. Bill Wilson said, the need is the call. Let's say that together. The need is the call. If you see a need in front of you and you can feel that need, you've been called by God. Do it. Do something. Okay, Larry, don't start preaching. I do have a license. Christ commended the Ephesians for following through with the work of the ministry, even to the point of weariness and sacrifice. Which is another thing he said. It was he said he liked the fact that they had perseverance without growing weary. Let us not grow weary in well doing. You know, that's easy to do. It's easy to grow weary in well-doing. But if you keep your eye on the prize, and the prize is Jesus Christ and his bar, his goal, you don't have to grow weary. There's something to be said for being around on the other side of difficulty. There's something to be said for for finding yourself on the other side of the challenge. We talked Wednesday night again. Maybe all y'all need to come to home group on Wednesday night. I don't know. The Hullet's table's not quite big enough for everybody, but, uh, it, in, in, uh, I think 1990 something, I don't know. Brother Charles, we had a, uh, some uh, meetings in Atlanta 
We had them every year, Fellowship of Christian, Fellowship of Covenant Ministers and Churches. And uh, he preached a message I'll never forget as long as I live. And he said, uh, you can say what you want to about Peter. Yes, he was he was denying Jesus. Yes, he was saying bad words so the people wouldn't think he was associated with Jesus. Yes, there were a lot of things that you could say about Peter. But you can say one thing about Peter, that he was there. Where, he, he and John, you know, he and John were there at the trial. Where, where were the other nine? We know what happened to Judas. Where were the other nine? But Peter was there. <laughs> Something to be said for being there. Something to be said for coming out on the other side of a challenge and difficulty. You may have scars all over you. You may be bleeding from every blood vessel in your body, proverbially speaking. But if you come out on the other side, then you've won. Winston Churchill said, success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. Courage to continue. In the midst of it all, the church at Ephesus had remained steadfast and constant. And Jesus likes that in a church, and he likes that in one of his people. The church of Smyrna, he said to them, I like the fact that you have have enduring, you've been enduring adversity. Similar to what he said to Ephesus, you've endured adversity. Adversity. Some of you, most of your Bibles there is going to say the word tribulation. You've endured tribulation, which is just a word that means pressure. It's the same kind of a pressure that takes, uh, uh, John Anderson's old chunk of coal and turns it into a diamond someday. It's the pressure that, that God uses to form and shape you in the heat of the moment. And then when he's done, what what results is a is a diamond, a valuable diamond. It's that same kind of pressure that he says to the church of Smyrna, I'm pleased that you have endured the pressure. It's through the pressure of life we can learn from Acts 14. It's through the pressure of life that we actually enter the kingdom of God. We want everything smooth. We want everything hunky-dory. We, including me, we want everything to be easy going or however, easy peasy, whatever that means. But the fact is, if the caterpillar is going to become a butterfly, their struggle is necessary. It's the same as we as believers and followers of Jesus Christ, we're going to have to endure adversity. Now, right now in the United States of America, we don't really know what that means. You can go to our brothers and sisters in China and other places. They can teach you what that means. And maybe, maybe one day we experience similar things. What are we going to do? Are we going to run? Are we going to quit? Are we going to compromise? Are we going to stand with our hands over the fire saying bad words and, and, and denying that we have anything to do with Jesus Christ. What are we going to do? Peter writes in his letter to not be surprised or think it's some strange thing when we face fiery ordeals that, that stretch us or put pressure on us. David sang about going through the valley of the shadow of death. He didn't go around it, and he didn't escape it. Jesus told this church in his letter that Satan was going to cast some of them into prison to be tested. 
He didn't promise to deliver them from the prison. He only exhorted them to remain faithful till the end. Interesting that he told Peter, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. He's asked permission to sift you like wheat. And you've heard me say, Peter expected the next words out of Jesus' mouth was that, but I told him, no, you're one of my kids. You're protected. But that's not what he said. He said, Satan's asked for permission, and I've prayed for you. (laughs) Two things. No promise of escape. And when Jesus says, I have prayed for you, there must be a real need for him to pray for you. And what, you know what he told him then? He said, you're going to fall. And he did. But when you, when you return, when you come back from your fallen place, encourage your brothers. Lord, help me. Those of you who have fallen, you've had issues in your life, addictions, problems. You've fallen on your face. You thought God would never use you again. When you return, encourage your brothers. The greatest gift that God can use in his, in his church today would be people who went through. That's what I loved about Gary Browning so much. Gary's in the great cloud of witnesses today. Was that Gary went through 10 years. I mean, he, when he called Brother Charles in, in the midst of his addiction, he said, Brother Charles... I need I need help. I'm I'm literally eating out of garbage cans and sleeping in the gutter. Now, for those of you who don't know Gary Browning, he stood here many times and preached the gospel to us. And Brother Charles said, "Here's what you do: you come to my house, me and Carolyn, and you live with us till you get. We're gonna get you through this." How many of us would do that? Ten years later, he started the ministry that today bears his name, Gary Browning Ministries. Dealing, what, was, what is he doing? He's helping people who need recovery. He's helping people walk out of where he walked out of. He's helping people get delivered out of what he got delivered out of. And now he's in heaven and his wife is continuing the work. So encourage your brothers. Mm, let God take what the enemy meant for evil to turn it into good by you grabbing somebody who's gone through what you've been through and helping them out of it. I guess that's enough of that. Pergamum, he said, you've remained true to his name in the face of possible death. He said, you live where Satan's throne is. How about that for a statement? I know you live where Satan's throne is. Many people believe that this is a reference to Pergamum being the center of emperor worship in Asia. I don't really know, but evidently it was pretty bad for Jesus to label it where Satan lives. But he says to this church, you're holding fast to his name in the face of this corrupt culture. Can you and can I hold fast to Jesus' name in the face of a corrupt culture? Uh, Last week we had... Two baptisms, and, and I've mentioned this many times, and you've heard it before. Uh, but, uh, again, going back to Brother Charles and, and the man that was his pastor, 
for many years with Brother Ken Summerall were somewhere in another foreign country, and they were standing on a hillside watching a number of people getting baptized in the lake. And the, the, they were really marveling at the, the people getting baptized. And their, their uh, translator said, well, you don't understand one thing. And they said, what's that? You don't understand that those people who are being baptized, they are, they know, as we know, there are people right now back at their hut burning it down and tearing and destroying everything they have. Why are they doing that? Because they're over here in the water identifying with Jesus Christ as their Lord. Could you pay that price? Would you pay that price? We're so coddled. In America, we, we don't, you know, okay, I'm going to quit. We're on positive stuff. Franklin Graham, when he was at Columbine, we had uh, Daryl Scott here a few weeks ago on Wednesday night. Daryl Scott's his daddy. Craig Scott. Thank you, Roddy. Uh, he prayed, he was praying a prayer uh, at that, at one of the events of that, and he, he prayed, uh, in the name of Jesus and so forth. And he was chided by the media. He was also chided by some pastors. I've got in my notes here, chided by supposedly Bible-believing pastors. And then at the inauguration of George W. Bush, Franklin Graham prayed this, Now, Lord, we dedicate this presidential inaugural ceremony to you. May this be the beginning of a new dawn for America as we humble ourselves before you and acknowledge you alone as our Lord, our Savior, and our Redeemer. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And almost immediately, the uproar began that Mr. Graham had overstepped his bounds by not adhering to the rules of modern civic pluralism and to speak of God only in general terms. Do you, do you understand that the name of Jesus makes a difference? It's not that the name of Jesus is magic. It's that the name of Jesus is powerful. And our identification with his name may cost us one day. Well, I'm going to hurry through. I'm running over again. Y'all going to, Good night. You don't have to pay me overtime. <laughs> he tells Thyatira that he likes, he loved the fact that they have love, faith, and service. He said, I know your works, your love, and your faith, and your service, and your patient endurance, and that your latter works are greater than your first. Love, faith, and service. He tells Philadelphia, who, by the way, of the seven churches, Philadelphia is the only church for which Jesus has no negative statements. Faithfulness to God's word. He commended them for being faithful to God's word. We dealt with that last week. And he said to the church of Philadelphia and to one of the other ones, I think Pergamum, hold fast to what you have. Hold fast. Hold on. Hold tight to what you have. Don't give up. One of the ways we can hold on to what we have is to keep holding on to the word of Christ, the word of God. We can keep holding on to the content of what God has given us. And, and as I said last week, not let it be laws, rules, and regulations, but let it lead us to the heart of Jesus Christ. The psalmist said, I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. It's a heart thing. Please hear that. If you, it's just in case you weren't here last week, 
please don't pick this book up looking for a rule. Pick this book up looking for God's heart. What's his heart in the matter? In a decaying and compromising culture, we need to be sure that we, like the church at Philadelphia, hold fast to and keep his word. Now these are just some these are just some things that he gives these seven churches. He identifies in these seven churches some things he likes and some things he doesn't like. I would encourage you when you have more time uh, that you would read chapter two and chapter three and see the more the more detailed. But we see a common thread through all of these things, and that is that we would hold on, that we would keep the faith, that we would not give up, and that we would understand that in life, difficulty is inevitable. It's just a fact of life. And God uses the difficulty to change us, to to morph us into his image. It's inevitable. And in closing... And I'm really closing, so anyway. Let us purpose to become that church to which Christ can say, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. I'd love to put that over our door and say that, Lord, let that be us. Stand with me.